Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, the New England Patriots are in the playoffs. Yeah, but not exactly with a huge head of momentum, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> yeah. Losing the oh, Dolphins oh, twice. Oh, you don't think it's good to yeah. lose the Dolphins twice yeah, and yeah. then roll back into uh, Buffalo where it's just kicked the shit out of us? And very cold. Yeah, we need it to be like either negative uh, 50 in like, you know, driving winds or uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, the negative 15 driving winds could play to your advantage. Uh, that we need. Last time you only ran the ball, right? Yes, yeah. yes. I think Mac threw the ball three times. But anyway, the listeners hate the sports yeah. banter. Our global listeners love our discussion of American football. Yeah. <laughs> we apologize. Uh, we have a great show today. It's, uh, it's a fun, ranging, interesting set of topics, in my opinion. We're going to start in Kazakhstan because there have been protests which seemed like they turned into proxy fighting, and then there were more Russian troop crazy, movements. Crazy story, yeah. Truly. Yeah. Um, we'll also cover some more trouble for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It's worth it, this one. This one's worth it. How Canada is trying to ban bigotry. Some news out of Ethiopia, some COVID news, an interesting update out of Haiti about the assassination of the former president, uh, how a tennis star is causing a major diplomatic incident in Australia. This is huge, yeah. And then we'll check in with uh, Jair Bolsonaro and Mike Pompeo, see how they're doing learn about an amazing North Korean uh, invention and celebrate a heroic rat. And then, Ben, you did an interview today. What are we going to learn about Ukraine? Yeah, listeners may be wondering why we're not leading with Ukraine, but we have a great guest, Alexei Hantaruk, who was the prime minister of Ukraine. Um, he's also 37 years old. What? Um, Come on. So if you thought you, you know, accomplishing by being in the White House as a I young guy. Um, but Alexei gives us the view from Ukraine um, of these negotiations that are happening between the U.S. and Russia, how Ukrainians are looking at things, how they're looking at Kazakhstan and kind of ties these things together. Um, so it's interesting. It's been interesting watching these negotiations, Tommy, uh, play out. Um, yeah. I mean, they're they're happening right now, I think, right? The NATO-Russia ones, right? So you had Wendy Sherman sit down with uh, Ryabkov, her Russian counterpart, yesterday um, for seven and a half hours. Um, and you saw some great readouts, you know, like business-like, uh -huh. candid, yep. you know, yep. the, uh, like all the, all, the all the euphemisms for we didn't really make any progress, but mm -hmm. we agreed to keep talking. Um, but it's tense, you know. Wendy Sherman will grind you out. She, what she did like weeks straight with the Iranians, right? Well, I mean, like, she's and, a good negotiator. And actually, like the, one of the things that was interesting to me is Ryabkov the, was the Russian in those Iran talks. Oh, interesting. So Wendy Sherman has spent like literally thousands of hours negotiating with Ryabkov on Iran-related issues, so it's not like the first rodeo here. No. Which is good, I think. Um, Hopefully. They have a relationship, you know, yeah. Imagine, like, they must just be, like, old friends who annoy each other for dumb reasons, like nose-breathing and, you know, slurping your soup, stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you what was super weird about the, the, the none of the Russian diplomats have changed, right? Yeah. So when you and I went to the White House in 2009, Sergei Lavrov was the foreign minister, Ryabkov was the deputy guy, and we had a pretty good relationship with the Russians, mm -hmm. and they were like these pretty reasonable guys. 
Yeah, and, Lavrov would like get hammered with reporters all yeah, the time at lunches and exactly. spin them and was seen as charming and was on the scene in Washington at times. That's and, right. And and so what's so interesting is when Putin came back in 2012 and then Russia took this increasingly dark turn, they re-emerged as these fire-breathing hardliners. Yeah. You know, the, per- the performance in Act 2 is a little yeah, different. Yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll do whatever they're told to do is what you learn. And so people like Wendy have this memory of these people being more constructive at a different time. And and so you, yeah, I guess it's good to know them on that human level, yeah. right? That they're, at the end of the day, they're following the, the playbook given to them by Vladimir Putin. You know? Fascinating. Well, hopefully it turns out well. Um, when you are done with this episode, uh, dear listener, check out the latest episode of Hysteria, where Aaron Ryan is back from maternity leave. Uh, and she's got a great new episode where they talk about January 6th, uh, and then they talk about all things pregnancy and postpartum. Super funny, interesting, uh, amazing group of women on that show. And then check out Take Line with Jason Concepcion and Renee Montgomery. They're talking about the return of Clay Thompson to the Warriors. Yes. Clay Day. And uh, more fun tennis news about Djokovic. Subscribe to Hysteria and Take Line wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Let's go to Kazakhstan, Ben, because like we mentioned at the top, I mean, this week or so, it's about a, a week plus, basically. We've seen huge protests deadly street fighting, security forces shooting live ammo at protesters, and then finally this Russian military intervention. Here's what we know. So on January 1st or 2nd, the government of Kazakhstan lifted price caps on liquefied petroleum gas. That is the fuel that most Kazakhs use in their cars. This set off a now familiar set of protests over prices, economic inequality, corruption, like general anger of the government. Kazakhstan is the ninth biggest country in the world. Uh, It's got tons of oil and gas and mining resources and a small population, but it's been ruled by a bunch of corrupt autocrats, well, one in particular, since becoming an independent state uh, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, and people were just pissed about their economic lot in life. But here's where the story gets more complicated, seemingly. The protest had started in Western Kazakhstan, and then they spread around sort of the region organically. But analysts think that, you know, literally a thousand miles uh, to the east, um, the fighting in the capital, Almaty, turned into something different. It was like a proxy fight between the current and former president with gangs and armed groups sort of on both sides that were heavily, heavily armed. Uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, who's the former president, he ruled Kazakhstan from 1991 until 2019 when he handed over the reins to the current leader, uh, President Tokayev. But even after leaving the presidency, Nazarbayev retained a lot of power and influence as the head of Kazakhstan's Security Council, which left him in control of the security services. So that was the case in the sort of political dynamic of, you know, the former leader still kind of running uh, the show to some extent until last week when in the middle of the protests, uh, Tokayev made a power play, announced he'd be taking over Nazarbayev's position leading the Security Council. Then he fired and arrested the head of Kazakhstan's intelligence agency, who was also a former prime minister. So it was a big time power play. Um, Tokayev then declared that these the, the protesters in the streets were foreign trained terrorists. And he asked this regional security organization led by Russia called the Collective Security and Treaty Organization for Assistance, fun name, uh, and Putin rolled in you know, the troops and tanks. So Almaty, the, the capital, was literally a war zone. Like There's all these videos of like constant machine gun fire, heavy fighting. The mayor's office, the presidential palace were, were attacked and burned. Um, I saw some reports of up to 8,000 arrests, thousands more people seeking medical help. Um, it's hard to know the truth because the, the internet keeps getting cut off, but there's also reports that Nazarbayev fled the country. So been, you know, a lot of context there. But historically, <laughs> um, Kazakhstan has tried to, like, 
straddle the West and the East, yeah. right? Like the Russians and the US and China and Europe. In one fell swoop, they went all in with Russia. What did you make of Secretary of State Tony Blinken's comment that, quote, one lesson of recent history is that once Russians are in your house, it's sometimes very difficult to get them to leave. <laughs> um, so this is a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and actually, I like that quote from Tony because, like, sometimes you don't see – Tony's actually, like, a really funny guy, yeah. you know? Um, and and it's good to see, like, the the Tony – That's what he would, That's what he would say if you're sitting here with us, you know? Um, right. So that was good. Uh, okay, where to start with this? So Nazarbayev um, has been, you know, the 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 autocrat of Kazakhstan since uh, its independence from the Soviet Union, and kind of held Kazakhstan up as the success of like the stands. You know, yeah. they were like they were making all this money, but they were largely doing it in oil and gas. You know. And not, not stands like the kids say. Yeah, yeah. Stands like the regional. like Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and you know, and so they had this kind of gleaming capital city with these high rise buildings, and they had the fold out ads and the Economist, you yeah. know, and they had like the international conferences, and and it was to some extent a, a higher standard of living success story. Um, but Nazarbayev also just phenomenally corrupt. Yeah, I mean, like billions just billions, billions. and Because bi what happens is after the breakup of the Soviet Union, they kind of auction off these oil fields and these natural resources and Nazarbayev got control of them. He's probably has untold billions of dollars. His kids have billions of dollars. And so the deal was essentially things are going to be stable here. Standard of living is going to go up a bit. But me and my family and my buddies yeah. are going to get phenomenally wealthy, right? And everyone else, you shut up. Yeah, you That's all shut deal. up. He kind of got too old to run the place, um, handed it off um, to the new guy, but importantly, kept his kids kind of in the mix too, right? right? So there's like a Nazarbayev uh, clan uh, that is still very influential in Kazakh politics. And then Tokayev, the new president, was kind of seen as like the guy who would do the bidding and keep the the, the shop running, right? It just for the listener, we'll probably have edited this, but Ben and I were both kind of struggling to think of his name. Yeah. This literally happened to Putin at a press conference last month <laughs> yeah, with yeah, Tokayev. Yeah. They were yeah, they yeah, were talking yeah, and he yeah. couldn't remember the guy's couldn't name. Couldn't remember the guy's <laughs> name, right? So this guy's not exactly and, and by the way, they were renaming the capital city of Almaty after Nazarbayev. You know, they yeah. they were trying to create a kind of cult of personality that would sustain itself. Then, clearly these protests were legit at the outset, right? Like you had people who were just pissed. You know, nothing's going to piss people off more than raising fuel prices. And oh, by the way, an oil-rich country right. in which all the oligarchs become billionaires off of oil and gas, but they still have to raise the price yeah, for me to like you heat my house or drive my fucking car. So people were pissed and they're pissed about corruption, all the things that you know you detailed. It does feel like in the kind of chaos of these protests and people are like, you know, smashing up buildings and kind of going after government buildings, it feels like there then became this power play between uh, Takayev, the new guy, and, and seeing this as an opportunity to dislodge the influence of Nazarbayev. And to do that, though, he makes himself essentially Putin's stooge. Yep. So his play is to say... Okay, I'm going to appeal to like the Russian version of NATO, which is essentially a collection of former Soviet republics that don't mind having Russia be the the shot caller in this kind of 
sphere of influence for Russia. We're going to ask these troops to roll in. We are going to crack down viciously. I mean, really, you know, just shooting people live fire in the streets. Um, and on the back end of that, what's going to emerge? It's going to be this president who was kind of a technocratic type of autocrat suddenly is the strong man. But he's a strong man who's more beholden than to Putin than even before. Yeah. Nazarbayev can maybe take his billions and just kind of get out of the picture and hope that things calm down. It yeah. feels like that's the play we just saw run. Um, and it's not, unfortunately, that unfamiliar. Uh, Belarus, for instance, comes yep. to mind. You know? Yeah, it seemed like Takayev was trying to sell sort of a, a softer, gentler autocrat image. But then shit goes down, these protests start. He starts to think that Nazarbayev is sending, you know, sort of gang members and sort of militia forces to foment violence. So he calls in Putin. And you're right, now he's a completely weakened autocrat. Yeah, what we don't know is what was kind of going on behind the scenes between right, the Takayev right. and the Nazarbayev people. But it, it just does feel like Takayev took the opportunity to 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 basically align himself with Putin and try to smash some of the influence of Nazarbayev in response to whatever play the Nazarbayev people might have been running. Yeah, fascinating. So uh, I, I read you that Tony Blinken quote. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry's response was, quote, if Antony Blinken loves history lessons so much, then he should take the following into account. When Americans are in your house, it can be difficult to stay alive and not be robbed or raped. Yikes. Uh, it sounds like Tony's comment uh, got under their skin. So, Ben, I, I think like every analyst... I've read seems to think that like Russia is coming away the winner here. They have more influence uh, in Kazakhstan than they did before. They, at least they have a leader who like owes Putin a pretty big favor. I guess the question I'm seeing a lot of people ask and argue both ways is, do you think this will have any impact on Putin's calculus when it comes to Ukraine? Like, is it more likely to make him want to invade? Is it less likely? Do you have a take on that? Well, I think if you just step back from all of this, and, and I do this later with Alexei a little bit, but you know, it, it is very hard to to look at the current situation generally and, and not feel like, oh, Putin has all this momentum, right? He's got like 100,000 troops bearing down on Ukraine. He's got, you know, Lukashenko is, is kind of his toady in Belarus. And now he's got Takayev in Kazakhstan inviting some Russian troops in to kill some people in his country. You can invert this, though. And wait a second, like in the places where Putin wants to have maximum influence, there's a lot of seething instability running underneath the hood of the car. You know? That's true. So in Belarus, clearly the people don't like Lukashenko anymore, and, and he's kind of lost whatever legitimacy he might have once had. Clearly in Kazakhstan, where there's not a lot of insight from the international community because it's fairly cut off, underneath the hood there, people seem pretty pissed. I mean, that was pretty clear. And so, and, and overall, Russia is not, it's not like this super rich country. It's this kind of hollowed out place where young people are leaving. So there's, there's one narrative where Putin's on the march and he's got more influence as these former Soviet republics and he's demanding that the U.S. negotiate with him about NATO. But on the other hand, he's got fires popping up all along his borders in places where people are sick of kleptocracy and autocracy. He's got a, like a, a minuscule GDP compared to Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. He's got young people leaving the country. And so the question is, in the short term, he can really drive events, right? Because he could just decide, say, to invade Ukraine in the same way he just decided to send some troops into Kazakhstan. But in the long run, he doesn't have like that good cards, both in terms of just the relative strength of Russia economically, but also just in terms of like, 
people wanting to live under Putinism, right? Yeah, and just um, being overextended. Yeah, too. just being overextended. I, I, I think people should be cautious about. I, I don't know that Russia has going to have to deploy mass amounts of troops away from Ukraine into Kazakhstan. No, it, I think it was like twenty five hundred. It like, sounds like they're already coming. out. It feels out. like they're already coming yeah. out. So it feels like they did. They they busted some heads, shot some people, and came back out. So, it, but if anything, I think it does heighten the stakes that like what is happening, and this we cover with Alexei later. But what's happening in 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 Ukraine and all these places is really Putin just trying to to push democracy out away from any bordering state, you know? And and I'm going to be the force that, I'm basically the security force that bust yeah. heads in all these places. And, and the question is, is that going to prevail? Or can can people's aspirations to have a better deal going to ultimately cause the lid to blow off all these places? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess in the it's a good question. Um, we shouldn't necessarily assume it's one or the other. The thing that does suck is for like, you know, activists, protesters, civil society members in in Kazakhstan who had this legitimate moment that started and kind of gets subsumed in this proxy fighting, seemingly, and then the Russian intervention. Like that, that part's tough. Yeah, it, and Takayev had some insane. Like I think he said something like there were twenty thousand foreign terrorists. Yeah, he made up. I mean, they just just total bullshit. Right? Same bullshit. I mean, uh, you watch the videos; it's worth. And some of them are wild, right? There's people on horseback. There's yes. dudes walking around with two by fours. But like it, 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 it clearly. There's popular unrest, uh, you know, in this country, and you know they can say all they want about foreign. Ter- they don't care to even be credible anymore in their conspiracy theories. No, no, they don't. They don't try at all. Um, okay, let's turn to the UK because there's a, a different kind of uh, political instability that Boris Johnson is dealing with that he created for himself. Uh, a leaked email shows that one of Boris Johnson's top aides invited more than 100 staffers to a BYOB garden party at number 10 Downing Street in <laughs> May of 2020. So this is during the heart, like the height of the early pandemic and lockdowns. May of 2020. May of 2020. A hundred person rager. It was like a wedding. Yeah. Um, this news was broken by ITV News. Uh, they saw a copy of this email. It was from the prime minister's principal private secretary, Martin Reynolds. Fun title. Apparently about 30 to 40 staffers actually showed up, including the prime minister and his wife. Less than an hour before the party, Ben, uh, Johnson's culture secretary was doing a daily COVID press briefing, and he told everyone the following quote, you can meet one person outside of your household in an outdoor public place, provided that you stay two meters apart. So those were the rules uh, for the people not CC'd on that email, and then the rest were at a garden party. This is not an isolated incident, as we know. We talked about similar reports of parties, gatherings by Johnson staff, some of them uh, at number 10 Downing Street, right? There was the holiday party during the lockdown and then the leaked video of Johnson press staff, like joking about how to lie about it. Uh, Johnson initially uh, asked a cabinet secretary to lead an investigation into these incidents because, yeah, he clearly wants to get to the bottom of what happened. But the person he asked to lead the investigation had to step aside because he knew about the garden party, apparently. Now there's calls for Johnson himself to be questioned as part of this broader inquiry. The Metropolitan Police are looking into it. Um, ben, I'm going to ask you to predict the future, which is dumb, but why not Why not speculate? He's a political survivor, right, Boris Johnson? But, like, I don't know. This one just <laughs> yeah, feels... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This one feels so bad. Yeah. I mean, everyone can understand. Like, I don't know that labor is ready to capitalize. That's always the problem. The elections might not be for a while. But this is such an easy story to understand. One set of rules for me, another set for you. Yeah. I mean, so the basic problem they have is that, is that they want to live by a different set of rules and have BYOB ragers at the height of COVID. The other is that they continue to lie about it. 
Right? Lie. So they and they keep getting caught like directly in the lie. It's like, well, I didn't know anything about this. Oh, like, well, here's the email from your guy, yeah. like sending out to like, the people. thing for the rager. And and part of the problem with their lying and covering up here too is that like there were like hundreds of people like involved in this. You know, like it's not hard for someone to be like, oh, wait a second, actually, I have the email where you invited me to the BYOB rager right. at number ten Downing Street. And he Garden. fired and yeah. humiliated his top guy, this guy Dominic Cummings, yeah. a while ago, who's clearly just leaking everything he's gotten on a vendetta. Yeah, and so this is going to continue. I'm sure there's more parties. I'm sure there are more emails. You, you just have that feeling that there's yeah. a very large iceberg across uh, underneath the the Boris Johnson Titanic here. Um, now, why might the case for Boris Johnson's survival? He is a politician whose central insight is if you feel no shame about anything, you can survive anything. It's yeah, kind of like Trump, Trump's yeah. uh, insight that if you cannot be shamed, you know, you won't resign. And you'll just weather it and people's attention spans will move on to the next thing. Um, the problem is it's pretty clear that like this is really dragging down his approval ratings. You saw, we mentioned recent by-election, uh, local election, where they lost like a, a, a serious Tory seat. And so there is the makings of uh, a real electoral reckoning, not just in a general election, which doesn't need to happen until 2024, but in, in every election on the way to that. And so if Johnson himself doesn't resign, do the Tories just toss him overboard, you know, because they're like, we don't want to go into the next election mm -hmm. tethered to this guy who's kind of lost the public. Right. Um, I I'm not going to predict the future because I don't see Boris Johnson as resigning type, you know. No, I don't know um, so my my suspicion is he'll try to weather this. And and I don't know enough whether the, the Tories will make a decision that, you know, ultimately they don't they don't want this guy as a frontman anymore. But it's it's a very weird thing that he was so insistent on partying through COVID, though. Like, it's just like, it's such an easy thing to not do. Yeah, yeah. So he, he got it. He nearly died. Yeah. He nearly died. You'd think that that would have had a sobering, uh, pardon the pun, uh, effect yeah. on the guy. I mean, this, that <laughs> might have been after this. I don't know I don't know when that happens in the timeline here, but Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. And he had a baby during, like, uh, there's so many reasons he shouldn't be at a garden party with yeah. 30 or 40 people in the height of COVID. What, 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 why he felt so compelled to do this is kind of the the part of the mystery here, you know. But, like, yeah. I, I just, um, I, I do think it, it, you know, he's in real political danger. And there's a real opportunity for labor to make this a bigger case than just the COVID thing itself. Totally. The, the disrespect that this demonstrates is manifest in a lot of the government's policies and choices that essentially, if Boris Johnson's slogan around Brexit was famously take back control, like it's time for the people of the United Kingdom to take back control from George, Boris Johnson because yeah. he has no fucking respect for them, right? So if I'm labor, I'm focused on, yes, demanding he step down, demanding inquiries, but building this into a larger argument about this conservative party has sold itself out and sold out you know, illegal voters. lobbying yeah. by conservatives, et cetera. Um, another story is uh, uh, the Queen of England recently announced uh, a list of folks will be knighted. It included former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. Uh, that is a huge honor in the UK to become a knight. That's probably, probably an obvious point. But people are uh, a little shocked, a little angry, a little surprised that Blair was on there given his role in the Iraq war. And some folks quickly organized a petition calling for the knighthood to be revoked, and it received over a million signatures in less than a week. Um, I would say clearly, like the U.S., the U.K., none of us have the full reckoning for the Iraq war. 
that we probably need, but like not knighting a guy <laughs> yeah. who helped uh, precipitate it seems like an early step. But you know, to the, your, the question about whether labor's ready to to step in and you know fight the other side of these fights, uh, Keir Starmer, the labor leader, was out there saying that yes, Tony Blair does deserve to be knighted. So I, I'm not sure that's the position I would have taken here. I think you have two problems here. One is like the Iraq piece, but the other piece is that Tony Blair has gotten a lot of negative press over there for his post-prime ministership life, yeah. which basically has entailed him making a lot of money off the Nazarbayevs of the world. You mm-hmm. know, like he's basically jumped into bed with a bunch of oligarchs and autocrats and his this kind of blend of consulting and philanthropy and the rest of it. The problem for labor is you've got the Blair legacy that is complicated by Iraq and this kind of whiff of corruption. And then you've got the Corbyn legacy of this kind of hard left turn that didn't didn't work out um, with these anti-Semitism issues that had to be addressed. And so what is the foundation you're standing upon? Yeah. You know, you you almost have to kind of rebrand this entire endeavor in a way, you know. Feels familiar. (laughs) But but if I'm Keir Starmer, like I'm sure what he's thinking is I I need those Blair voters back. That's true. That's true. Those those sort of moderate Blair. And he's also sort of making a technical case. Well, he was the prime minister. He did this for that for the UK, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I would uh, I would sort of check out the million people signing petitions saying no nitrate for the guy and kind of read the room. Um, (laughs) Okay, here's a good news story, Ben. So last week, a Canadian law banning conversion therapy went into effect. Uh, conversion therapy is is this snake oil treatment that is supposed to help convert gay people or to straight. Or, it's nonsense. Yeah. It's bullshit. Uh, it's, it's usually abusive. Um, the law will make it a crime to offer or promote services that are intended to change someone's sexual orientation. Um, the law will also make it illegal for Canadians to take minors abroad to get conversion therapy so you can't like drive your kid to somewhere in the U.S. and do it. The bill passed Canada's House of Commons and Senate by unanimous consent back in early December. Some conservatives now say they were confused by that process and wouldn't have voted for it, but like, whatever. Way way to do your job well, guys. But um, a dozen countries have passed laws to protect citizens from conversion therapy, uh, including 20 states in the U.S. and Washington, D.C. So good for you, Canada. Hopefully the U.S. maybe will get our act together and pass a federal law too. But, uh, you know, lead the way up north. Yeah, I mean, and there have been a bunch of these issues where Canada has been, you know, uh, a laboratory for, um, you know, more progressive policies. I mean, they, they've, they've been very good on gender issues internationally. Um, and, and look, I, I think on the LGBT issues, part of what we've seen is a lot of resistance in a lot of places. But what you also see is once you start making headway, like in this country, it changed very fast, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so things that seemed like impossible, like gay marriage, suddenly are very normal now. Um, so the hope is that if you have other countries kind of creating a template for what the right set of laws are, um, that you have a vehicle that can be expanded as, as the movement for LGBT rights totally. globalizes. Yeah, and you can measure the impact and, and do all sorts of good things. Um, some interesting news out of Ethiopia. So recently the government said – it would release a handful of political prisoners in a step towards resolving the civil war in Ethiopia that's been raging for a year, like 15 months, actually. Um, this seems hopeful, Ben, but I don't know. My hope is a little bit tempered by the fact that previously uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has ruled out talks with the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, who are the leaders of the rebel faction that the government has been fighting with over the last year. But you know, the momentum in this fighting has sort of ebbed and flowed. Uh, the New York Times quoted some diplomats and analysts who said that the government's recent military success is because they were supplied with armed drones from the UAE and Turkey. So again, 
Wonderful. Um, but again, there's real urgency here because Ethiopia's security forces have cut off hundreds of thousands of people living in the Tigray province. They're starving to death. It's really an urgent matter. So I, I don't know what to make of this. Um, I want to see some hopeful news. I want to think there's some sort of process for resolution. I also have a pretty strong, healthy distrust of anything the Ethiopian government says. But I don't know. I don't know how you read this news. I mean, I think if you know, you have a situation where what may be emerging on the ground is an awareness that neither side can just win this war, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that you may have shifts in momentum back and forth, but the idea that the government is going to completely pacify and conquer essentially the Tigray region, that's not going to happen. But also the idea that the TPLF is going to come down and totally conquer Ethiopia, that's not going to happen either. So when you have a situation where both sides may come to that realization, you obviously want to get to a negotiation. These sides hate each other. And so the idea of getting right to the core issues of like how is power shared and is there autonomy in Tigray and these kinds of things, it's hard to start with those kinds of conversations. So what you look for are are there kind of confidence building steps like prisoner Mm -hmm. releases that can at least start a a pathway into a negotiation about those bigger issues. And that's what you would hope is that that there there are these kind of underneath the, the hood you know, we're probably urging them to do confidence-building steps like prisoner releases, mm-hmm. right? And and so y- you hope that that's a part of a process that leads somewhere yeah. rather than just like one-offs that disappear into quicksand. Right, prisoner releases, talks, ceasefires, yeah. like yeah. those sort of the recipe. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh, man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. And I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Uh, ben, quick uh, global COVID update. So... The World Health Organization says that half of Europe will have been uh, infected with the Omicron variant of COVID-19 within six to eight weeks. So that's a sobering headline. Uh, It's a projection based off seven million new cases that were reported across Europe in the first week of 2022. So the Omicron is moving from west to east across the continent, kind of like a wave. How bad it will impact various European countries will be determined by, you know, the percentage of the populations in each place that are vaccinated and the strength of their individual healthcare systems. Um, on Monday, Pfizer said they could launch a version of their vaccine tailored for Omicron. Omicron? Omicron? What are we going with? I'm an Omicron guy. Okay, um, Omicron. Maybe we can't pronounce on this show. So. Uh, no, historically yeah. bad. Um, so, look, uh, uh, the Omicron-specific vaccine in March, good news, maybe a bit late, though. I, I don't know. Um the good news, though, is that there's now considerable evidence that this variant leads to less hospitalizations, fewer ICU admissions uh, than the Delta variant. So, you know, obviously the risk is that if so many people get sick, it could overwhelm European health infrastructure. But, you know, Ben, stepping back, like it's it's uh, we've talked about this most days uh, the past month, like it's demoralizing, exhausting, frustrating to have COVID like still so front and center in our lives. Twenty twenty two. You are starting to see some health experts say there could be a best case scenario that is basically this Omicron variant overwhelming Delta variant and other more deadly ones. It moves so quickly and infects people so quickly that we get to some level of herd natural immunity uh, and cases go way down fast. I mean, that's easy for us to stay sitting here in the U.S. fully vaccinated, but, you know, it seems like the options are bad and worse and, you know, Long term, maybe Omicron as composed to Delta is there's a silver lining there, but we'll see. I mean, I guess a few like different takes on this. I mean, uh, than what you might normally get like from uh, epidemiologist Twitter. Um, first is like it feels like that those numbers are higher just because Europe is better at testing than we are. Like probably, we're yeah. probably going to be like, you, you know, half infected too. I don't know. It, but my, I've been struck by the, the, there's just more testing and reporting in some of these European countries. I don't know. That's, that's, that's just my, my, that was my impression of why would there be more of a percentage of cases, positive cases in Europe than here. I think the second thing is that this reinforces that there'll continue to be just these disruptions. So to things like travel and the resumption of, of tourism, things that are important to Europe's economy um, and the function of kind of certain international business and, and even diplomacy. Um, which leads to the third thing, which is that what we're also seeing everywhere is that incumbent governments are going to suffer from the reality that people are just fucking pissed Being off. Being in charge right now is yeah. no good. And so you could you could be trying to do everything right. It doesn't matter. You're going to get blamed. Mm-hmm. And people are sick of the disruption more than they are, you know, wanting more lockdowns. And so I, I have to think that the trajectory of politics is going to be towards 
yes, continuing to prioritize things like vaccination, but also like trying to figure out a way to live with yeah. COVID. You're seeing this from Biden's former advisors, for example. Yeah, you're seeing ideas, it from Biden's yeah. former advisors. You saw it in the UK mm-hmm. with Ted the Johnson government dealt with Omicron. Um, you saw Macron tell say that Eastern his whole strategy was to try to piss off the vaccinated. That was, that was a weird um, take, but I, I guess he's trying to he's trying to redirect it was the rage that, yeah. the rage towards the unvaccinated away from him, which is maybe a, a one bet. Um, so I think you're going to see people trying to evolve towards a place where you kind of assume Omicron is the new variant and we're going to live with it. The other challenge, though, as we've talked about, is if we don't do more to vaccinate more the world. You just give the virus more time to mutate into a variant that might be more deadly than Omicron. And so, you know, there's no answer to this that doesn't involve more vaccination in the global south, too. Totally. We got to ramp up production of those vaccines. Update out of Haiti, Ben. So the New York Times reported that there is new evidence that suggests that Ariel Henry, the current prime minister of Haiti, actually has ties with the prime suspect, a prime suspect, in the murder of the former president, Jovenel Moise, uh, back in July, and that Henri and the killer might remain in touch. That's not very good operational security yeah. if you're still calling the killer and you're you're, you're uh, in charge of the country. So the New York Times saw phone records that show Henri spoke with a guy named Joseph Felix Badio, who's a former justice minister, who's now suspected of organizing the presidential assassination. Uh, it sounds like they spoke before and after the assassination happened, including twice the morning that Moise was killed. The Times also reported that uh, this former Justice Minister Badio visited Henri's house when he was being hunted by the police. Um, obviously, the prime minister's office denies everything, but the Times also interviewed a drug trafficker who says he helped finance and plan the assassination. Yeah. <laughs> that guy tells him that Badio, this former justice minister, was bragging that he controlled the prime minister's office. So a lot of different threads here showing that there's a connection. Uh, Henri has also fired prosecutors who are investigating his role in the case. Um, everyone should read the full story. It came out on Monday, the 10th. Uh, there's lots of details. It's worth reading it. I guess my takeaway, Ben, in question for you is, I guess I'm not really surprised by this, that you know the sort of arrival would take out a rival. But I guess where my brain went is I worry that if you have a current prime minister desperately trying to avoid prosecution and yeah. stay in power, that increases the risk of violence even more. It also reminded me of the conversation we had back in the day with uh, with Lord Marincourt, who's a, a journalist based out of Haiti, about how it's bad whenever the U.S. tries to sort of dictate Haitian politics and get you know, back a guy like Henri, um, who now appears to be connected to the murder. But I don't know. What, what did you take on this take away from this story? I mean, it it felt like very plausible, right? Um, you know, basically an alliance of political actors and cartels and, uh, you know, people that would have an interest in both offing the prime minister and just kind of getting their hands on the levers of whatever political power there is in Haiti. It also made me think that, like, it's a sign that, like, patient and relentless investigative work is important mm-hmm. because there, some of those early stories were. Remember, there's like a doctor in Florida. Yeah, they're blaming a doctor you know, in Florida. Yeah, 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 like, all over the place. Um, this feels like more real. And it does speak to the need for kind of international investiga- investigative resources to continue to be put it into this because the idea that the Haitian government's going to get to the bottom of this, um, you know, kind of doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, it seems like there's like in parts of the Haitian government that are leaking things selectively to the Times to other places. Because they're being suppressed probably yeah, by the yeah. prime minister, right? Um, and and it leads all the way back to like where we started on this issue, which is that 
the political elite in Haiti feels like completely compromised by from various directions, you know, from gang activity, drug activity, participation, potentially in political violence. You could have the very awkward situation where a, a judgment is made that the current prime minister killed the previous one, right? And I think that all this kind of reinforces like what you just alluded to, which is that the U.S. needs to be building relationships and taking the advice of Haitian civil society, of, of people that are, are outside of this power game, mm-hmm. that that the idea of just having like another election that can be you know, easily rigged by a bunch of gangs on behalf of some corrupt front man right. is not the answer here. It's more long-term bottom-up building of civil society capacity to have a different kind of politics in Haiti. Yeah, yeah. It's um, informed by Haitians, not you no, know, not imposed by us. Not by us. Not by us. Um, okay, let's take a wild swerve and talk some tennis. Uh, <laughs> so Novak Djokovic, Serbian tennis star, has been locked in this like brutal rhetorical and legal match with the Australian government, and it's a total mess at this point. The backstory is. Uh, Djokovic flew to Australia last week in advance of the Australian Open. That tournament starts on January 17th. But when he arrived, Australian authorities detained him, they questioned him, and they pulled his visa because Djokovic isn't vaccinated. Uh, Australia's COVID rules say that all non-citizens have to be vaccinated, except in certain narrow cases. So Djokovic spent four nights quarantined in what they call an immigration hotel. I imagine just like a quarantine place in Melbourne uh, before finally getting released because the judge said, hey, this guy wasn't actually given enough time to respond to the legal proceedings before getting his visa revoked and tossed in this hotel. Uh, Djokovic's team says he recently recovered from COVID and that means he qualifies for an exemption under Australia's rules. Australian authorities say the exemption is only for travelers who had serious illness. I don't really get the distinction there. Um, So anyway, this is a total mess. There's a chance that he could still get deported and miss the entire tournament. So, Ben, there's not like a good guy here. (laughs) There's not really a lot of good guys in this story. (laughs) Yeah, like Djokovic, he seems like he lied on his travel entry form because that requires you to not have traveled for 14 days before arriving in Australia. But like his Instagram shows him both in Spain and in Serbia. So clearly he he got that wrong. Uh, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison is jumped on this incident for political purposes. He wanted to show what a hard ass he is, but his critics now say like, hey, this is a mess because your approach to immigration is be an asshole first, throw people in prison first, and then ask questions and use your brain second. Uh, and also, by the way, Australia is dealing, dealing with like a big Omicron surge and a shortage of tests. So I, I don't know, like this is so messy. Do you have a take on, you know, whether he should get to play, whether he should get deported, what could have been done differently? I don't know if you're a big tennis guy to begin with. I'm eh. I'm a tennis guy. Um, I should start by saying I'm a Nadal guy. Uh, I'm a Rafa guy. I'm Team Rafa. Um, I mean, Djokovic's a dick, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the impression has always been he's been kind of a dick in that you have like Federer, this really classy guy, Nadal, this really fun, exciting guy. And then Djokovic is like, you know, almost like Drago style, like, you know. He's literally uh, hanging out with war criminals. Yeah. A really good tennis player. I mean, probably <laughs> the best tennis player of all time, but like, you know, um, yeah, uh, unsavory type, right? Um, but, you know, he, he had some constructive things to say about the recent China dust up, right? You know, people there can surprise you. Right. Um, so, so, first of all, like, the fact that he's unvaccinated is annoying. Maybe he and Aaron Rodgers and Kyrie Irving 
can do a couple shifts Ooh. at an ICU and and see what that's like. Or of like a three-on-three three team that can just um, dominate. Yeah, because like well, I've, I have people in my family who are, are, are nurses and, you know, they get all these anti-vax people overwhelming the ICU, making their life hell. So why don't you go check that out? Mm-hmm. That would be my solution. Is instead of a quarantine, you had to spend a couple of days in an emergency room and see what idea. the consequences for human beings of people not getting vaccinated. Scrub up. Yeah. Um, then the Scott Morrison piece of this, because they've completely mishandled this too. Um, number one, what's kind of weird to me about this is Scott Morrison is a right-wing asshole, but he's picking a fight with the kind of right-wing asshole adjacent anti-vax community, right? Yeah. So just from a matter of pure I didn't politics, get it either. like I get that he's flexing his kind of anti-immigrant bona fides, but he's also kind of weirdly picking a fight with his base, right? Right. Because I assume that the anti-vax movement in Australia is a right-wing thing too. So the politics are not as obvious to me as yeah. like, you know, they might appear, right? It, it would uh, be like uh, Ron DeSantis uh, arresting Ted Nugent at the Miami airport. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, it'd, be, it'd literally be like Ron DeSantis preventing Aaron Rodgers from playing <laughs> a Dolphins game because he's not vaccinated. Yeah. Like it, uh, you know, um, so that was weird. The other thing is it highlights the fact that um, they have an incredibly inhumane immigration uh, policy where if, if you want to look into it, you know, people, thousands of people have been detained in very inhumane conditions because of their view that that's kind of this deterrent against mm-hmm. migration. Scott Morrison used to be the immigration minister. Yes. And he was proud of what a dick he was to, to immigrants, basically. And now they're treating Djokovic like that. And so now he's tied himself in this knot where the way they're treating Djokovic is actually highlighting this other problem that they have. If Djokovic gets the release and able to play, then there's a double standard. You know, yep. how come this rich tennis player gets to be let out and gets exemptions from your laws, but all these other people don't? Um, and and so that leads me to the very last point, which is why they allowed this to get in a situation where it feels like the prime minister of the country is making this decision. That's like, the sketchy part. That's what, like, wh- the, 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 the tennis tour, like the men's tennis tour, should have their own rules about whether you need to be vaccinated or not, right, presumably. Or the letter of the law should just be followed as to what h- exemptions he might or might not have and just take it out of politics and let the, you know, the machinery of the, the tour and the local authorities be the ultimate judgment here. Instead, it's kind of become this thing where it feels like it's a decision being made by the prime minister. And that to me is bizarre. Yeah. What it seems like could have happened is like, I think Djokovic might have landed at like 4.30 in the morning, 5 a.m. He gets interviewed right away. They tell him, okay, you have like 12 hours to make your case, get all your documents together. Uh, Some judge literally says, I think it's in a transcript. And the judge leaves a room for a minute, comes back in and is like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. You, now you only have until 6.30 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. It made right? Djokovic sympathetic, yes, you know, because it, it was like, wait, he didn't even get to make his case, you know? Um, and, and that suggested a whiff of politics, yep. you know? What what else happened when that guy stepped out of the room, you know? Messy. Uh, speaking of COVID, Ben, uh, the Mexican president, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, says that he too has COVID, tested positive for the second time. I don't know if he has a good tennis game. But I guess he looked bad enough at a press conference that a reporter was like, dude, you okay? Uh, He said he thought he had the flu. And then later that day announced he had tested positive again. The first time was in January 2021. So 
everyone's getting it. Yeah, I mean, this is like the the new normal, right? Um, one of the questions I have is like, do we know when everybody gets it? Like, in other words, like there's this whole Ron DeSantis thing, right, where he went off the grid for a couple of weeks and came back and looked a little worse for wear. But like, you know, some of these leaders don't necessarily embrace transparency, right? No. So we may not know who gets it. And then the other question is what happens if, you know, some of these people are pretty old. Um, what happens if, you know, uh, you have like, uh, death of a leader, you know, I mean, Amla's up there, you know, um, I mean, yeah. I hope he pulls through for his sake, but, um, you know, there's, there's a lot yeah. know, that hasn't happened yet. In we got to protect our old leaders. Yeah, we, we do. We agreed. Do. Yeah, we agree. We will be agreed on that point. <laughs> uh, someone, uh, head of state who is seemingly kind of embraced transparency around his health is, uh, Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was hospitalized. We talked about this last week. Turns out the issue was he swallowed a shrimp without chewing it thoroughly enough. Now, <laughs> I want to laugh at this. I know the listeners want to laugh. But again, he has intestinal issues because he was stabbed in the abdomen uh, during a campaign event in 2018. So shitty person, but yeah. not funny yeah, to stab that's someone. shitty that that um, My question for you, Ben, is, you know, has a shrimp or any other crustacean ever tried to take you out? Um, no. I did have a, a terrible experience once. Um, swallowing a really large pit at a at the at a state dinner in Bangkok. Oh my god! Okay? What, what kind of so pit? So we're in uh, Thailand, and they serve this like like local fruit that's kind of like a, a you know, felt like plum adjacent, right? But the pits are larger, and it, it just went wrong. I had the nurse. I would like probably Ronnie Jackson, like oh, really? congressman is involved. Like <laughs> it's like, stuck in my throat. I, they gave me, so, yeah, like it was, it, Did it you was get a little, to get Heimlich? No, I didn't get Heimlich. It had to kind of work. It's, let's just it yeah, yeah, work sure, itself sure, out. Sure. But I, yeah, that, that you just gave me that memory. I, um, reminds me of the shrimp in, um, apocalypse now. <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you eat that shrimp, uh, soldier, you don't have to prove your courage in any way. I, uh, I had to perform the Heimlich on the press charter. Uh, on the one of our Latin America trips, remember that one of our colleagues, I won't I won't say his name. Yeah, sitting next to me, I was dead asleep, and all of a sudden I'm like getting shaken awake, and it's the guy's next to me, kind of like reaching over. And I tried to like reach over and do the Heimlich, and then I had to run around back and jump on the seat behind and like kind of do the Heimlich that way. Wow. Yeah, and I remember Ashley Tate Gilmore was like, <laughs> she started yelling for Secret Service, like it was their job to like <laughs> dislodge Skittles from you know Assistant yeah, Press yeah. Secretary. Did throats, that did but, that work? I mean, yeah, it worked. But it took good thing, good skill to know. It took a frighteningly long amount of time. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, it was not cool. Uh, it's not good. But yeah, I you know fun on foreign trips. Yeah, the the other foreign trip thing that occurred to me uh, is uh, Australia related and immigration related. So because uh, it speaks to kind of like the you know, the dickishness of some of their migratory policies. So we were flying into the G20 in Brisbane in 2014, and Ebola had happened, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And they had a, like a questionnaire that had to be filled out whether you had traveled to the continent of Africa. And if you did, you needed to get all this extra screening, presumably. Um, now, the thing that you know, caught the attention, uh, I don't think she'd mind me saying, uh, of our then national security advisor, Susan Rice, mm-hmm. is that Africa is a very large continent. Yeah, yeah um, sort of like uh, U.S. plus Europe plus it, a whole bunch of other places yeah. combined. And Ebola was only in very small number of West African countries. Right. It was basically in, you know, uh, Sierra Leone, um, 
Liberia, Guinea. Um, and, and this really pissed her off. Um, <laughs> and even Obama was kind of like, really? Not a good look. Uh, yeah, that's not a good look. Yeah, all of Africa. So they, 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 they need to, you know, they're such friendly people, the Australians. Like, uh, let's, let's lighten up on the uh, stringency of your immigration policies and visitor policies. My main memory from the time I went to Australia with Obama was going to that little like airport in Darwin where we hot. did that marine installation. And then when we were in Brisbane, no, wait, what, where's the capital? Canberra. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember walking into a glass table in the hotel lobby so hard <laughs> that I thought I'd snap my shin in half. <laughs> Ow. And the table slid off and hit the ground no. and like it didn't shatter, but okay. it made like the loudest noise you could possibly <laughs> make. And I looked like the biggest asshole. Like people from behind the front desk were coming over to ask if I was okay. I kind of like tried to walk it off and limp. And then I looked under my suit and I was bleeding like Ooh. a monster. Oh, and, you know, I had one suit on the trip. Like a, it was, was Brian Jackson help you out there? <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't <laughs> stitch me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You probably knew I was an asshole by then. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, stay in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, we got some uh, updates out of North Korea, Ben. So first, North Korea fired two ballistic missiles into the water off the East Coast last week. That is bad. Feels like it happens all the time. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it anymore. Not good. I mean, he gave some speech about it, had they needed to improve their capabilities, and then they fired this thing off. It feels of a piece of Kim Jong-un. You know, Content. Uh, okay, so second, according to North Korean's state news, uh, one outlet claimed that Kim Jong-il, the former supreme leader of North Korea, father of Kim Jong-un, the current guy, uh, actually invented the burrito. Uh, so these propagandists said that Kim Jong-il came up with the idea for wheat wraps in 2011, right before he had a heart attack and died. So I guess, you know, some ideas are good enough to kill you. Uh, according to this other report I read, Ben, on this, uh, the word burrito first appears in a Mexican dictionary in 1895. I was going to say, the... Yeah, so I'm not sure about this claim. I recall eating burritos before 2011. It, that does uh, feel pretty recent to have invented yeah, a burrito. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, like it, the lengths to which you can invent a reality if you have total control of information and uh, yeah. You know. This is a lie you could tell before the invention of the internet and yeah, not yeah, after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's clear what their perspective It's like, it would be really funny in like 1997 to just walk around and be like, I invented the yeah, pizza. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the burrito is a very specific uh, thing to claim, claim to invent. Too. It's also like, you can't just call a wheat wrap a burrito. Can we, but, but here's the thing. I, what was the meeting in which someone came up with this idea? I don't know. Because that meeting happened. Like there was a meeting where some people were like, you know what, we really got to strengthen the Kim Dynasty's, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, Q rating. <laughs> what if we said that that the previous weird guy who ran this place invented something and someone's like, I got it. What if we say he invented the burrito? Or is it Kim Jong-un likes burritos? And I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. And there's also, I think, during a period of like intense famine and there hadn't been harvest. Like of all the times to say you invented the fucking burrito, that's probably not the one. I don't know, man. Whatever. Speaking yeah. of food choices, uh, former uh, failed Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has oh, been yeah. the subject of some talk lately about his health uh, and was the subject of one of the strangest editorials I've ever read in my life, ever. So Pompeo did this gauzy interview with the New York Post, and he said he lost 90 pounds in six months by exercising and eating right. Um, it seems like maybe he did this little PR hit because people were speculating that he got surgery or whatever. Like, who cares? You know, good for him. Good for you, Mike. Um, for some reason, the Kansas City Star editorial board 
wrote an entire piece calling him a liar. The headline was... <laughs> I appreciate... What are you talking for some reason? Because he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> he's a fucking asshole. This is the headline. Dude just tell the truth. Mike Pompeo lost 90 LBs, but not the way he said he did. <laughs> and it quoted a bunch of like bodybuilders, weight loss experts, air quotes, who said Pompeo's story was impossible. But none of them had actually talked to him. I guess the argument for writing it is what you said. He's an asshole. He's a public official. He'll, uh, he's a liar. He'll lie about anything. Call him out on his lies. He'll even lie about this. Yeah. Maybe claiming that you can just like magically lose 90 pounds in six months is a bad message, is unsafe, is promoting something. I don't know. Uh, did, you, did you read this editorial? Oh, Do we yeah. need Dr. Oz uh, to comment? I read it very carefully. Is, is, uh, I mean, number one, Mike Pompeo may be the only human being on the face of the earth who can lose 90 pounds and look worse on the back end of that process. He's haunting. Like, like he, he's kind of this haunting specter now, yeah. right? Like um, he, he looked better as a fat dude uh, than uh, he looks right now. Let's just say that, first of all. Second of all, I, it, like he's so clearly lying. Like there's not some diet of uh, like, look, I like Athletic Greens, like, you know, cricket sponsor. But like the idea that you're going to lose 90 pounds. It's a lot. It, it, by like eating a little bit less and working out is just, I don't think, backed by science. Like a lot of things that Mike Pompeo doesn't believe in, climate change, et cetera. <laughs> um, so it just shows that this guy's just like a brazen liar, right? Then it's like, why is the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post even think it's of, of interest to their Why is the New York Post readers? doing a gauzy spread on yeah. his, like, in-house gym? They did a photo shoot in his basement. Well, this is, and this is the thing where you also see, like, the Hugh Hewitt's of the world. Like, uh, Mike Pompeo's some presidential, you know, caliber figure. Dude has never cracked 1%, right, in any poll that I've seen. Like, however much he weighs, right? I don't know what what the reason is that like Rupert Murdoch feels like, well, we better give Mike the chance to like yeah, talk up his diet. We're making fun of the burrito story and the New York Post is over here, like <laughs> yeah. doing the same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and there's a weird thing on the right, like, like with these, it's, it's always dudes too. Like their, their obsession with like, it, cause if you look at Alex Jones and Seb Gorka, they're always hawking like weird supplements or weight loss things or things that make old men look like young and virile. Yeah, like a lot of snake oil. There's a lot of like masculinity, um, uh, you know, aspiration from these guys. My favorite are like the Alex Jones before and after shirtless pictures. When he looks exactly the same, but like they tinted the photos. So he's a little <laughs> yeah, more yeah, tanner, yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. like sprayed on some abs. Anyway, uh, last story for today, Ben, uh, and it's a sad one. Previously on this show, we have talked about Magawa, who is this genius little rat who was trained to sniff out landmines. This little hero uh, was awarded a gold medal at one point for his heroism because he sniffed out over 100 mines or other explosives in Cambodia, probably saved countless lives, yeah. probably children's lives. Uh, sadly, he passed away this weekend at the age of eight. Um, so I just wanted to say, you know, thank you again, Magawa. Hopefully you are up in heaven crushing cheese with, you know, the Ratatouille guy. Yeah. Uh, Master Splinter. <laughs> Hopefully he's having the soup of the Ratatouille guy. Yeah. Master Splinter from the Ninja yeah. Turtles. I don't know. Any other famous rats? Mrs. Bisbee and the Rats of Nim. That was a great book. I mean, it it, it goes to show that, like, you know, uh, we do all these, like, medical experiments in rats, but the reality is, like, we should be putting them to work, you know? Yeah. They got skills. Magawa has had a greater positive impact on the world than Mike Pompeo. That's I mean, true. It, it is amazing, though. Like, sometimes... You, you, there's so much money put into technology to find 
weapons or mines or radar or this or that. And yeah. there's just like some amazing animal could just find it. Eight years must be a pretty good run for it's a rat. It's a good run I for mean, a rat. Uh, yeah, like I, you know, we'll pour one out. I don't know, you like grew I, up in New York City. You probably have more experience. <laughs> I mean, like you look, you're, you stick your head down a subway tunnel. Look, some of those guys look like they've been there for 80 years, you know, like they just, they, they got turf over there. We, we had a, a rat issue at my old um, place in LA. I've had, my I've had rat issues in some was, uh, of my residences. It's not pleasant. It was tough. Yeah, it's tough. It was tough. Well, Magawa's, uh, Special, but not, you know, Magawa would make an exception for it. Yeah. All the cheese to you. All the cheese in heaven. All the ratatouille guy up there. To, to Magawa. Okay, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have Ben's interview about Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's intentions and whether there's going to be an invasion and everything else. So stick around for that. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Okay, I'm very pleased to welcome to Pod City of the World now, Alexei Hantaruk, who is currently a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council based in Ukraine. He's a former prime minister of Ukraine uh, uh, alongside President Zelensky, uh, the youngest prime minister in the history of Ukraine. Um, and before that, you know, he's been in civil society. He helped uh, be a part of the Maidan protests uh, that, that led to um, the end of the Yanukovych government. Um, so he's been in the middle of <laughs> things over there. Uh, Alexei, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much uh, for your attention to our country. I believe that uh, in our part of the world now, uh, we can see very important uh, events uh, for history, not only our region, but democracy in the world in general. Well, the, the last time I saw you was in a coffee shop here in Los Angeles. I'm guessing it's a little colder there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my first question, you know, we're all watching this situation play out, and I want to get into, obviously, the negotiations with Russia. But uh, what is the mood where you are in Ukraine? Are people concerned about war? Are people following these negotiations closely? Or are people there kind of accustomed to a state of war with Russia? Um, is, is it that unusual for you? So uh, Ukrainians are not scared. For sure, uh, a huge part of our society uh, realized that we are already in war with Russia. So for us, for Ukraine, uh, we already seven years living in these circumstances. So uh, it's not a new, something new, uh, like, I don't know, events or some, some new circumstance now. Uh, and 
this build-up, recent build-up, we uh, have seen uh, last couple of months uh, from Russian side along our borders. Uh, it's uh, one more uh, evidence that Russia is playing complicated but very dangerous uh, game. And Ukraine is only uh, a one battleground uh, in this broader, uh, broader game. I believe that uh, it's very important to understand that this conflict between Russia and Ukraine is not a regional conflict. It's a, it's a part of the war for democracy because Russia attacks not Ukraine, Russia attacks democratic country. So, uh, and uh, seven years ago, uh, Russian troops uh, invaded uh, Crimea and uh, entered uh, our um, like Eastern part of our country because of our choice, because a revolution of dignity uh, showed that people of Ukraine uh, uh, have chosen uh, the democracy as a model. And for Russia, it's a main threat not to have a democratic, successful country as a neighbor, because it could be a very dangerous uh, example for Russians itself. So uh, Kremlin afraid of people on the streets in Moscow and St. Petersburg and other cities. So the Russian street is a main threat for a Russian government, for Kremlin. And we understand that they are afraid uh, not to have a democracy in Russia because Putin realized that uh, if uh, they have democracy, he will lose his power. So uh, my general uh, description of this situation uh, is that it's not a regional conflict. It's very important to understand that it's only a part of the game, uh, uh, Russian uh, place. If we look broader on this picture, we will realize that all this military coups, uh, like uh, political murders, um, uh, energy crisis, migration crisis, uh, military invasions and attacks uh, of uh, Russian neighbors. It's uh, all uh, like picture, the whole picture uh, described as the real situation. The real situation is a war against democracy, uh, Kremlin's uh, like play. When you see uh, so when you see Russia uh, alongside that military buildup make all these demands that that the United States is unlikely to ever meet, you know, uh, to, to not just the U.S., but to NATO generally to to pull back from eastern countries, to to not have any NATO forces, to promise no further NATO enlargement, not just to Ukraine, but to any country. Do you see those as like a serious negotiating position from Putin? Or do you see that as him just trying to create some pretext to say that the United States uh, and the West wouldn't do what he wanted? So now he has a, a reason to, to, to annex, you know, the Donbass or to move further into Ukraine. Look, all these arguments from Russia's side is only an excuses, you know. So uh, when Russia attacked, uh, Ukraine invaded Crimea seven years ago, uh, Ukraine wasn't a NATO member. So, and uh, for Russia, uh, it was only like uh, a reason. Yes, it's like they used uh, all possible arguments uh, to hide their real intentions. And the real intention is to destroy all democratic countries around uh, as a neighbors and to prove 
the concept that democracy is weak, democracy couldn't be successful in the region at least, and uh, to show to Russian people, first of all, and to, uh, to the people in the region in general, that democracy is very dangerous, weak, and uh, it's like an incorrect uh, concept for the countries. So Russia is trying to show it's so NATO is not a problem for Russia. Uh, the Russia democracy is a problem for Russia. And this is very important to understand. So Putin don't afraid of uh, military uh, invasion from NATO countries. He realized he is a like clever man, yeah? He and very experienced one. Uh, he realized that it's absolutely impossible to imagine the picture when NATO countries will just attack, military attack uh, on uh, Russia. But he realized at the same time that democracy in Russia is very dangerous for him, for his regime, and for his, uh, it's like, I know, for his criminal crowd, uh, I believe. And, uh, and that's why he attacked democracy and uh, uh, democratic countries and democracy as a concept. Uh, they invest a lot of resources uh, to undermine democratic um, like politicians in in Europe to destroy the trust through propaganda. You maybe know that they're very active. Russian today is very active in yeah. Europe. For example, they support all these weird concepts of anti-vaxxers and so on and so forth. So they they use every opportunity to undermine the trust between countries between people in democratic countries to remind trust to the uh, democratic governments in Europe and even in the United States. Uh, so they, they, they uh, interrupted your uh, elections actually to show your people in the United States that elections uh, are uh, unfair. So, and to, um, to uh, create the situations when your people in the United States will doubt that your government is legitimate. And the same situation they use in, in European countries, in, in Ukraine for sure, because Ukraine, and Ukraine is on the front line of this struggle. It's, but it's only one battleground, battlefield of this war for democracy, but the main battleground, I believe, now, because yeah, you, for Russia, for Kremlin, Ukraine is an absolutely key element of their uh, concept. Well, what, so what would you uh, advise the United States in these ongoing negotiations, right? I mean, uh, what, is, what is the formula that you would like to see at the negotiating table. The Russians want all these promises, including a promise that Ukraine will never join NATO. The U.S. is trying to talk about transparency on military exercises, things like that. But it, it feels like, on the one hand, we're far apart. But on the other hand, if the negotiations collapse, that might give Putin the pretext to, 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 to invade Ukraine again. Um, I mean, so what, what would you be saying to, to the American diplomats at that table? First of all, we, uh, we should realize and American uh, diplomats better to realize that these negotiations is a tool to avoid a hot war, you know? So this is a tool, but these negotiations is only uh, a, like a way how to win some time. Uh, but we should use this time uh, 
to make Ukraine and other uh, like fragile democracies, uh, uh, fragile countries, to make them stronger, to support reforms, to support, uh, to create and to help them to create the uh, military capabilities, uh, to be capable uh, to push back uh, to uh, Russia if Russia will decide to invade some country, not only Ukraine, Ukraine, Georgia, Baltics, uh, like Moldova, a lot of countries, even Kazakhstan, I believe. Now, uh, you know perfectly that in Kazakhstan we'll have very interesting uh, uh, like events. And uh, uh, I will not be surprised if uh, Russia will decide to invade uh, to Kazakhstan if uh, they will have uh, um, like, they, they, will, they will see that Kazakhstan could be a democracy. Yeah, there are more protests, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, if, if only Russia will see that Kazakhstan will become a democracy. I have no any doubts that Russia will uh, act military uh, to create the problems inside Kazakhstan because Russia attacks every single democratic country's uh, uh, democratic neighbor. Uh, there is no uh, democratic neighbor uh, uh, to Russia uh, without uh, some uh, high, very high risk of military uh, attack or existing military conflict uh, uh, with uh, Russia. Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, uh, all these countries uh, become more or less democratic. So not perfect, yeah, but uh, still uh, like electoral democracies. And uh, only authoritarian regimes, uh, authoritarian neighbors don't have any problems uh, territorially and military problems with Russia because Russia understand that uh, they can use and they can influence uh, on the dictators, on the strongmans, uh, like politically, yeah, into what to keep them in, in into their part of the Russian world. So when you talk about strengthening Ukraine, I mean, there's always, you know, obviously the question of, of military assistance. Uh, pr presumably, you'd like to see that continue. But what are, for the audience that may not follow events that closely in Ukraine, how would you describe the state of reforms in Ukraine, the state of democracy in Ukraine? You know, you obviously were part of that in the Zelensky administration and then as prime minister. Um, uh, how would you describe the, the state of Ukrainian democracy today? Look, uh, Ukraine is a democracy for sure. Uh, we had uh, every single time, every next elections, we, we change the uh, political elite. So we have elections, we have fair elections in Ukraine. And this is a main uh, like example uh, how the country becomes successful in this very complicated circumstance. Because if you will see uh, around Ukraine, even uh, in Poland, even in uh, uh, Hungary, now we have uh, like somehow backsliding of democracy. In Turkey, in Belarus, in Russia, uh, they even don't have, uh, they have some problems with elections. Uh, so, uh, Ukraine doubtless is a democracy, and more than it, we have a positive democratic trend in Ukraine because uh, every year our 
uh, local governments uh, become uh, more and more uh, capable and uh, the elections to the local governance uh, become more and more interesting for people and important in Ukraine. So people, uh, um, um, every single year, people, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian citizens become more and more involved into the uh, this, like, governing the country. Yeah? So, and we have uh, the, um, a free media, because we have uh, a lot of uh, groups of influence and uh, different, uh, many different owners of our medias. Of course, we have a problem of our, with our oligarchs because the main our media is controlled by different oligarchs, but still we have some uh, variety. Uh, yeah. Competition variety. at least. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. and it creates a, a good uh, uh, situation with our media. So we have free media, uh, freedom of speech. We have me, uh, freedom of uh, like uh, um, uh, public uh, protests and, yeah. and so on and so forth. Uh, about reforms, uh, 10 years ago, Ukraine was absolutely different uh, country. So we, we made a huge progress uh, for this time. We already have some uh, good examples and building institutions. For example, our national bank is I believe one of the best in uh, Eastern Europe now. Uh, and that's why we have stable and strong currency uh, even uh, in this uh, situation with a build up. Uh, we still have problem with corruption for sure, but uh, this corruption, level of corruption is much uh, lower than uh, even five, seven years ago. So we, we, we have a progress here. So with reforms, I would say that uh, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of reforms should be done, but in general, uh, Ukraine is moving uh, to the right direction, uh, to the west actually, and this is very important to support because uh, you perfectly know that Ukraine the reforms depends on uh, electoral demand. So when people uh, demand something, yeah, then people yeah. vote for something, reforms uh, like can happen. And you know, Russia is um, uh, playing uh, a very huge role actually uh, in uh, influencing our people, influencing Ukrainians, especially in our Eastern and Southern part of the countries to undermine these our reformatic path. So sometimes, for example, if you uh, want to build some strong institutions, it's absolutely obvious uh, that you should um, give to the people, to civil servants, a normal salary, you know? So because yeah. people don't, can't, can't just work without a normal uh, uh, support. And uh, But uh, uh, Russia always is trying to uh, share the uh, fakes, rumors about the uh, level of our salaries and um, support uh, not only anti-vaccination campaigns, but uh, the uh, uh, campaigns, informational campaigns in, against our government, against our civil servants to destroy trust um, between our uh, people and our government. Yeah. To make sure that uh, our civil servants will not have a normal uh, salaries. For example, it's only one uh, a small example. So Russia is trying to uh, play uh, inside Ukraine 
influencing our electorate, our people, uh, and uh, supporting uh, pro-Russian political forces to stop reforms. But um, despite that, we, as I already mentioned, we made a huge progress for the last 10 years, I believe. So when you step back and you look at all this, um, you know, on the one hand, it seems like people in Ukraine would prefer democracy um, and have made sacrifices for it. We've seen people in Belarus um, express the same preference and and kind of obviously uh, that those protests have for the time being, you know, you have Lukashenko with Putin's support keeping a lid there. We see protests in Kazakhstan um, against a corrupt government um, and with Russia's support, those have been put down for now. So on the one hand, though, you can look at this picture and see that that all around Putin, um, people would prefer democracy. But on the other hand, it, you know, the perception, I think, internationally is that there's all this momentum with Putin, that his strong men are winning in Belarus and Kazakhstan, that he has this huge leverage on Ukraine with these troops, that he's driving this agenda and these talks with the United States. I mean, when you look forward um, how do we have a more hopeful end to this story? Um, what What is the thing that, that you would like to see that could tip the balance in the direction of people in places like Ukraine and even Belarus who are, who are pushing for democracy? Um, you, know, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, the Putins of this world don't, don't win? Uh, we should show uh, uh, good examples. Uh, but, so Ukraine is an example already when people uh, choose freedom and uh, now it's very important to make sure that Ukraine will become successful economically. So when people in the region, like in Belarus, in Kazakhstan, in Russia, will see that democracy brings uh, like wealth, so brings uh, a good level of a good quality of life, not only freedom, uh, people will choose democracy because Russia, as already mentioned, they invest a huge money to show to the people that democracy is weak, is absolutely, it's like, it's about moral decay, it's about poverty, it's about instability, and so on and so forth. And this is the narrative. And they are selling these like fake rumors and fake narratives uh, to uh, make people uh, scared even of democracy. So now democracy is not very popular and good concept in Russia and Belarus, uh, or even in uh, like Kazakhstan, you know, democracy is something uh, about moral decay, about yeah, marriage, yeah. and so on and so forth. So first of all, we need a good example, and Ukraine should be this good example. That's why when we actually prepared the article with uh, Ambassador Mark Fall, we wrote that uh, the best answer the best Western answer to Russian uh, all this aggressive behavior is to support Ukraine as a country uh, example of, of, of a good democratic past. Because, um, you know, it, it, of course, it's the situation in Belarus and Kazakhstan is different, of course. And we shouldn't and we can't compare it uh, with Ukraine because of many reasons. But uh, to simplify this difference, I would say that democracy, uh, we shouldn't take democracy as granted. And democracy, you can achieve democracy only if you choose 
a freedom and you're ready to death to 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 uh, become dead yeah uh, uh, to fight to death uh, for this freedom so uh, what's better is to uh, like mm, I don't know be alive or be free you know it's very it's very complicated choice and sometimes in Ukraine and I remember this a moment in Ukraine very well when we decided that there is no reason to be scared. There is no reason. So anyway, you will live in your country uh, only if you are free. Because if you are not free, you should just leave your country and, uh, I don't know, become an immigrant. Yeah. And when an, a, enough uh, like percentage of people in society uh, decided that freedom is uh, valuable enough uh, that uh, people are ready to uh, fight uh, to death for this freedom. Uh, this moment become uh, this like I don't know key momentum, yeah, when democracy uh, uh, can prevail. And uh, I I believe that of course the concept of peaceful protest in Belarus and in Kazakhstan is very important, but. I, I believe that we should create a good example, strong example uh, for, for the people uh, and to uh, show actually uh, on the practice that democracy can bring a nation to the better life. Not only to, uh, I don't know, to, 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 uh, to, to be free, you know, but to be wealthy, to be well protected, to be capable, uh, uh, to have a good governance, and so on and so forth. Uh, I believe I'm an optimist, and I believe that it's absolutely inevitable to have democracy in the region. Uh, I am sort of sure that Ukraine is a stable democracy. I mean that we will not lose it because uh, people in Ukraine really understand that. Um, um, Democracy is a huge value because a lot of people in Ukraine died actually for democracy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's why for us it's not an empty concept. It's not something I don't know from the books. Yeah. It's 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 very uh, valuable stuff. So, and I believe that Ukraine could be uh, not only beckon but uh, I don't know a shelter for all democratic uh, power for all democratic you know, movements, forces, civil society, and so on and so forth, for all the region. And Ukraine will be a country uh, um, to export democracy uh, uh, to the East, actually, to Kyrgyzstan, to Kazakhstan, uh, to Belarus, and someday maybe to Russia. Well, that's a good note to end on. Well, uh, I appreciate your optimism. Uh, we, uh, we obviously are hoping that uh, you know, we we don't see further violence um, and Russian intervention in Ukraine. Um, these are difficult times, but uh, w I really thank you for giving us the perspective from from inside of Ukraine. Thank you very much, Ben, one more time for your attention to our country. I believe that this war for democracy is global. Absolutely. It's not about Ukraine, about Russia. It's about Thailand. It's about uh, yeah. Taiwan, it's about China, uh, even Japan, Mongolia, and so on and so forth. So a lot of countries uh, now are uh, uh, under this threat uh, and uh, will not have a stable and peaceful situation in the world globally uh, till we will solve this problem with these strong man's with these aggressive uh, empires.
Yep. Well, that's the challenge for our times. So um, I agree with you. Uh, thanks for coming on and uh, keep in touch. Thank you very much. All right. That's it for us today. Thanks again to Alexei Hunterouk. Thanks to uh, everyone who made it to the outro. Thanks to Magawa, the special rat. Thanks to Mike Pompeo. Thanks to burritos everywhere. Anything Thanks else? to the person who actually invented the burrito. Yeah. That was a great, great, great man or woman. That was a hell or of a rat, move. Maybe. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, a, or a very special Secretary <laughs> of State. Uh, stay safe out there, everybody. I hope, uh, Djokovic, if you're listening, come on the show. Same thing with uh, Rafa Nadal. Yeah, Nadal. That, that would be a much cooler one. Um, all right. Well, you got anything else? That's all I got. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.